You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Uh, well, we have had a big weekend, Wake Weekend in our student ministry over uh, the last couple of days, uh, where we've had a couple of, of hundred students, 300 or so students up here, just learning and growing up in the Lord. It's been really an amazing weekend. And church, we do this because we know we have a responsibility from Jesus, not just to get the gospel to the nations, uh, not just to get the gospel to our neighbors, but to get the gospel to the next generation. And that's what this weekend's been about. We've had a lot of students meet Jesus, take next steps in Jesus. It is just been a really, really wonderful weekend. And we get the privilege today of the, the guy, Shai, who has uh, taught our, our students this weekend, has stayed over, and he's uh, is going to be preaching this morning. So I get a chance to introduce Shai Lin to you. Shai Lin's an author and recording artist who's released numerous acclaimed Christian hip-hop albums. And I would just encourage you to check those out on, on well, wherever you get music. Uh, check those things out. And uh, uh, grab the one that says lyrical theology. You might just start with that one. And here's what you're going to get. You're going to get a little mini systematic uh, theology textbook in a rap album. It's amazing. Uh, so I would encourage you to check all of his stuff out. Uh, after complete, uh, completing a pastoral internship at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., Shai co-founded Risen Church Fellowship, an inner city church in his hometown of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Shai's written for numerous Christian outlets and is the author of multiple books, the last being The New Reformation, Finding Hope in the Fight for Ethnic Unity. And lastly, Shai just made the move from Philadelphia to Portland, Oregon, and uh, that was like last week. And he's here this weekend uh, helping our students out, serving them, and serving you this morning. So in light of that, could we give a big welcome to Shai Lin this morning? Thank you, Brian. Well, good morning. It's good to be with y'all. Enjoyed my time at Wake Weekend and thankful for the hospitality here at Stonegate, and it's my honor to be able to share God's Word with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open up to the book of Acts chapter 4. So the passage that was just read is the context for the passage that I'll be preaching through this morning, and you'll be helped to have your Bible open because I'm going to be walking through the passage. So let me pray, and then we can dive in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise because you are good, and your steadfast love endures forever. We praise you that you are light, and in you there is no darkness at all. You are God, and there is none like you. Thank you for the privilege that we have to sit under the proclamation of your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We pray that you will be glorified as your word is preached. We pray for uh, attentive ears and hearts. Pray, Lord, that you would um, help us to love you more through your word, which is preached. And in this time, Father, we pray that the Spirit of God would use the Word of God to reveal the Son of God. And we pray that you would do this for the glory of your beautiful name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
The setting is the temple in Jerusalem. A man has been miraculously healed, and it is causing a commotion. And without question, what happened to this man was spectacular. This man had been crippled for decades. Anybody who's ever worn a cast knows that just after a few weeks in a cast, your arm or your leg is not in the same shape shape as it was before. It's weakened. Well, presumably from verse 22, we'll see that this man had not used his feet or his ankles for over 40 years. For all intents and purposes, his legs were dead. It would have been a familiar sight to see him either being carried around by others or dragging himself on the ground from place to place. Unable to work due to his condition, he was completely dependent on the mercy and generosity of the worshipers who attended the temple. And then in chapter 3, verse 6, he received a mercy beyond anything that he could have expected. In a command reminiscent of Lazarus come out in John eleven forty three, or Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise in Mark 41 or 541, or take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well in Matthew 9, 22, or let there be light in Genesis 1, 1. The man was told by Peter in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. There was nothing gradual about this miracle. It wasn't like the blind man in the gospel who first saw people who kind of looked like trees and then his sight was fully restored. No. In an instant, muscles and tendons that had wasted away from non-use were now strong and sturdy. Ligaments and body tissue that had atrophied over decades were now completely restored. Cells that had degenerated were now healthy and flourishing. And he's not just tiptoeing around. He's walking. He's leaping. He's ready to do the high jump in the Olympics. He's praising God. And the people in chapter 3, verse 10, see this, and it says, they are amazed. And so Peter seizes this moment and leverages it to proclaim Jesus and the gospel. And so that brings us to our passage this morning. And if you're a note taker, I have three points. Point number one, religious opposition. Religious opposition. We'll see that in verses one through seven. Point number two, spirit-filled proclamation. Spirit-filled proclamation. We'll see that in verses eight through 12. And point number three, courageous disposition. Courageous disposition. We'll see that in verses 13 through 22. First, religious opposition. Look at chapter four, verse one. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. 
And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? So just as Peter was proclaiming Jesus and preaching the gospel at the temple, some visitors show up. And I want to take a moment just to briefly highlight all the people that Luke names as opposed to Peter and John. So first, in verse 1, we see the priests. The priests. Now, this may refer to those mentioned in verse 6, but the priests were the people who called the shots at the temple. Then also in verse 1, we see the captain of the temple. This would have been the captain of the temple guard. The temple guard served a policing function, which is why in verse 3 it says they arrested Peter and John. Incidentally, the temple guard were also the very same soldiers who arrested Jesus. Then we see the Sadducees. The Sadducees, these were the wealthy, elite, theological liberals. We know from Mark 12, 18 and Acts 23, 8, that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. And we see it here in verse 2. They were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Then in verse 5, we see rulers, elders, and scribes. So rulers perhaps refer to the local government. Elders refer, refer to uh, influential older men who lived in Jerusalem. Scribes referred to men whose job it was to know and to copy the scriptures. And so taken together, rulers, elders, and scribes is probably a reference to the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish court. And then in verse 6, we see Annas. Annas was recognized by or recognized as the high priest, even though he had been removed from that position by the Romans years earlier and replaced with Caiaphas. But in the mind of the Jewish people, Annas was still looked at as the high priest. Then also verse 6, we have Caiaphas. This was Annas' son-in-law who was in the role of high priest. And then finally, we have John, Alexander, and members of the high priestly family. One thing that Luke wants to make crystal clear is that the apostles were dealing with a powerful group of people. Humanly speaking, this wasn't a fair fight. The disciples were up against religious power, governmental power, financial power, social power. These people literally ran Jerusalem. And notice how they abused their power. Simply because they didn't like what the apostles teaching, that what they were teaching, they took away their freedom by arresting them in verse 3. Maybe they would try to scare the apostles, put them in jail overnight. Maybe that would keep them quiet. But what they didn't realize is that while they may have locked the apostles up, they could not lock the gospel up. Amen. Many of those who had heard the word, verse 4, believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. 
And so in this, the first recorded persecution of the church, we see what we've seen throughout church history, that God often takes the very opposition to the gospel that's meant to shut down the gospel, and he uses it as a means to spread the gospel. I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy from a Roman prison. 2 Timothy 2, verse 8, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. The word of God is not bound. And so while Peter and John were restricted in their movements, the gospel continued to move in the hearts of those who believed. The point is, no matter how powerful a group of people may be, even when people sinfully abuse their power, nothing and no one can stop God's purposes. The gospel is unstoppable. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the minds of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Another thing to notice about this group, beyond the fact that they were powerful, is that they were religious. It was a religious group of people. And this should be a warning to us. The people who were most outwardly associated with God were the very ones who were most opposed to the work of God. Remember who's in this group? Priests, scribes, elders. These people knew the Bible. They handled the things of God all the time. These were respected religious leaders. These are the ones that would be asked to speak at weddings or funerals or or give the blessing at the birth of a child. They had the best religious education, the most degrees, They knew the Torah back and forth, and yet they did not know God. God was at work in their midst, and they were doing everything that they could to stop it. Jesus warned about them in Mark 12, 38. He said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. That's scary. When Jesus says about a group of people they're going to receive the greater condemnation, that's terrifying. And it should be a sobering warning to us, a reminder that loud public association with God is meaningless apart from private, humble devotion to God. Loud public association with God is meaningless apart from private, humble devotion to God. After Peter and John spend the night in jail, we're told in verse 5 that they're brought before the Jewish leaders. And you have to try to imagine how intimidating this must have been. Notice what it says in verse 7. It says, when they had set them in the midst... So the apostles were literally surrounded by the most powerful and influential religious leaders in Jerusalem. This whole situation feels like it was set up for maximum intimidation. And they're asked a question. It says, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? 
When they say by what name, what they're asking is, who gave you the authority to do what you just did, referring to the healing of the crippled man? Now, it could be that this line of questioning was a trap, because in Deuteronomy 13, it says that if someone does a sign and doesn't attribute it to Yahweh, that that person should be put to death. Also, it's very similar to a question that some of these same people asked Jesus just a few months earlier. Luke 20, verse 1, one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things and who is it that gave you this authority? So it's deja vu, same exact people, priests, rulers, scribes, elders, asking Jesus. They're asking now the apostles the very same question that they asked Jesus. Well, Jesus didn't indulge their question at the time. He actually answers them back with a question that they refused to answer. But Peter engages their question directly. And so that brings us to our second point. Our first point, religious opposition. Our second point, spirit-filled proclamation. Look again at verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders... If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone." And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The first question that hits me when I read this is, wait, hold up. Is this Peter who's talking? Is this the same Peter? And if that question doesn't come to your mind, let me refresh your memory. I want to recall an account that took place less than four months before this speech. Matthew 26, 69, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So a few months earlier, Peter is cowering before a servant girl, calling down curses on himself, saying, I don't know Jesus. Jesus who? I don't know who you're talking about. I don't know the man. Four months later, he's standing boldly before the most powerful leaders in Jerusalem, proclaiming Jesus as risen from the dead and the only way of salvation. How do you account for that? Two answers. Answer number one, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, 
That phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit, appears a number of times in the book of Acts. And in almost every case, what follows is bold proclamation concerning Jesus and the gospel. Just a few verses after our passage down in verse 31, we see the believers gathered and it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and what follows is they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. That's exactly what we see happening here. Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit and he begins to testify about Jesus. By the way, that is the primary work of the Holy Spirit in this world, is to testify about Jesus. There's so many things that go on in the name of the Holy Spirit that have nothing to do with Jesus at all. You want to know if something is, like, is the Spirit at work in this? Just ask the question, is Jesus being proclaimed? Is Jesus being glorified? Is Jesus being exalted? If that's happening, then you can know that the Holy Spirit is at work. The Spirit does not point to himself. He points to Jesus. This is the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of Peter. Apart from the filling of the Spirit, he's cowering before a servant girl. But with the filling of the Spirit, he's bold before the most powerful leaders in Jerusalem. And so here's a simple application. Is there anybody that you desire to share the gospel with, but you're afraid? Maybe a coworker, maybe a classmate, family member, somebody you know that they need to hear the gospel and you, and you want to share the gospel, but there's just this fear that comes up. I know that feeling. You know what we can do in those moments? We can pray. Ask God and say, Lord, fill me with your spirit and give me boldness that I might share the gospel with this person. That's what he did for Peter, and he will do that for you as well. And so that's the first way that we account for Peter's newfound boldness, the Holy Spirit. The second way that we account for it, number two, is the resurrection. (laughs) The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 10, let it be known to all of you And to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. The resurrection changed everything for Peter. Remember that he's literally standing before the same people who arrested Jesus and had Jesus put to death. If Jesus had stayed in the grave, it would make no sense whatsoever for Peter to be willing to suffer prison and possibly death for something that he knew was a lie. No, Peter knew that Jesus had conquered the grave, which meant that all his followers will also conquer the grave. Therefore, the Jewish leaders had no power over him. The worst thing they could do to Peter was put him to death. But for the believer, to live is Christ, and to die is what? Gain. It's gain. It's a win-win situation for the believer. We don't have that apart from the resurrection. Also notice what the leaders don't say. So they could have ended the entire discussion simply by producing the body of Jesus. They could have said, whoa, 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 stop. Stop with all this resurrection stuff. Let's go down to the, to the tomb, let's get his body, and we'll, we can show you how foolish you are. They couldn't do that. <laughs> Why? Because the tomb was empty. 
It was true then and it's true now that the empty tomb answers all objections to the truth of Christianity. You can't deconstruct an empty tomb. No matter how hard you try, the tomb was empty. And so if you're tempted to walk away from Jesus this morning, consider the empty tomb. What do you, what do, you do with that? What do you do with a group of people who are willing to die based on the fact that this man was resurrected. Makes no sense apart from the empty tomb. It's the spirit, it's the resurrection that gave Peter the boldness to speak to the leaders the way that he did. And also notice just, and I'm just really struck by his boldness. In this formal address, first he points out how ridiculous it is that they were arrested in the first place. Verse 9, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, like what, like what are we talking about? Why are we even here? Because, because a, a man was healed? That's why we're here right now? This is reminiscent of Jesus asking the scribes and the Pharisees in Luke 6, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? And then Peter, in his boldness, says the very thing that they don't want to hear. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. This is all the stuff. He's not being politically correct. This is all the stuff they don't want to hear. I imagine they must have been thinking, man, we thought we got rid of Jesus. Now here he is again popping up through the apostles. And I love it. He throws in the shot at the Sadducees, whom God raised from the dead. <laughs> yeah, Sadducees. I know y'all don't believe in a resurrection. Whom God raised from the dead. And then he throws in a quote from Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then immediate application to them. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become <laughs> the cornerstone. And then, for good measure, in verse 12, Peter proclaims Jesus as the only way to God and the only way to be saved. There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You want to talk about offensive. Oh, my goodness. This was offensive, especially to the Jewish mind. You think about the Jewish mind, like Isaiah 45, 21, it says, there's no other God besides me, a righteous God and a savior, there's none besides me. So in the Jewish mind, when Peter says that Jesus is the only savior, he's equating Jesus with Yahweh. That is offensive to the Jewish mind. But it wasn't only offensive then, it's offensive today. To say that Jesus is the only way to God and there's no other way to get to God except through Jesus? You want to talk about intolerant. That's so narrow. How can you say that Jesus is the only way to God? We have all these religions. But it's interesting that we don't say that about other things. So if tomorrow there was a cure for cancer discovered, nobody would say, oh, why is there only got to be one cure? There can't be many cures. If your house was on fire and someone said, there's a door that you can get out. 
Oh, why has there only got to be one door? I can't get out the window. Nobody does that. There's only one Savior, and praise God that there is a way. If, if we consider our sin and we consider the holiness of God, we would give God praise that he provided even one way for us to be saved. Amen. The angels, the fallen angels know this well, right? When, 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 the, when the angels fell, they got no way of salvation. They were immediately condemned. The fallen angels would give anything just to have one way to be saved. And Jesus is the only way because he's the only one who uniquely answers humanity's greatest issue, the issue of our sin. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's how we come into this world, and it's how we continue to live unless God intervenes. And because of our, our sin and our rebellion against God, it's, it's right and it's just for him to condemn those who rebel against him. But in his mercy and in his kindness, he's done the unthinkable. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to come into this world, to live the perfect life that none of us could live, completely fulfilling the law, to go to the cross and on the cross take in himself the curse for all our law-breaking to rise from the grave on the third day, vindicating his name and demonstrating that everything that Jesus ever said and did was absolutely true. And so it's good news that for anybody who turns from their sins and places their trust in Jesus will be saved from the wrath to come. And children, I want to just talk to the children for a second. I know a lot of children are in children's ministry, but... I see, yeah, I see you. I see you, child, okay? See, I see a couple kids in the building. Okay, children. Uh, uh, okay, all right, children, I see y'all. Amen, amen. So let me just say this to the kids. Kids, <laughs> there's nothing better that you can do in your whole life than to trust in Jesus. Jesus... Jesus is the best person in the universe. There's nobody like him. And you know what, kids? You don't have to wait until you're old like your parents to believe in him. No, no, Jesus will accept you if you trust in him today. And if you do, he promises that you get to be with him in his presence in full joy and happiness forever and ever and ever. And if you have any questions about that, Ask your parents, ask your mom, ask your dad, ask your grandparents, ask whoever brought you here today. It's not only true for children, but it's true for all of us. Praise God for the good news. Our final point is courageous disposition. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. The leaders were blown away. They didn't have a category for uneducated men going toe-to-toe -to -toe with them on theology. 
But actually, they should have because John 7, 15, it says the Jews marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? And it was undeniable because it says here in verse 14, the crippled man was standing. It's intentional that he put, he was standing there. So what are they going to say? How are they going to deny what happened? The leaders had a dilemma. They didn't know what to do. And so we see in verse 15 that they tell the apostles to leave. When they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Those are self-condemning words right there, right? They're going to have to give an account before the Lord on Judgment Day for those words. A sign has happened, and we cannot deny it. But then they say, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. And so the leaders had an opportunity to humble themselves and repent. There was a genuine sign that happened, which they acknowledged. But rather than repent and reconsider the claims of Jesus, they doubled down on their unbelief. Is that you this morning? Have you heard about Jesus? Have you, have you been told about the truth of the gospel, given opportunities to turn from your sin and place your trust in the Savior? Don't be like these leaders who double down on their unbelief. Turn from your sin. Trust in the Lord. It says in verse 18, they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. This mindset in verse 18, (laughs) don't speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. That same mindset is present in our culture today. Speaking and teaching in the name of Jesus. You know, in our culture, there's a culturally acceptable way to talk about God. And the culturally acceptable way is to basically include God as a throw-in or an add-on to the stuff that we're already passionate about, right? So we, th- we say things like football, faith, and family, right? Just throw faith in there. Nobody's going to get, nobody's going to be offended by that, right? right? Uh, celebrities, they, they win a Grammy, I want to thank the man up above. (laughs) Okay, yeah, nobody's going to be, all right, you believe what you believe. But you come out talking about Jesus is God. He's God in the flesh. He's the only way to God. And if you don't repent and turn from your sins and trust in this Jesus, you will die in your sins and be condemned for all eternity under the righteous judgment and wrath of a holy God. And Jesus is the only way to keep you from that. You say that. (laughs) Wait, hold up. That's not football, faith, and family. (laughs) That's that narrow, intolerant stuff, right? But I love what the, the apostles say. They say, but we can't help but speak, (laughs) right? So they're telling them, stop talking about Jesus. We can't help but speak. Why couldn't they help it? Because they saw, they saw him. 
They've tasted and they've seen that the Lord is good. How are they going to be quiet about it? And they didn't have to take an evangelism class, the apostles. They didn't have to be nudged and pushed out to go and share their faith. No, they did what we all do when we find something that we like and we enjoy. It's natural for us to tell other people about it. That's what we do with music. That's what we do with movies. We see a movie that we like. It's the fir- first thing that we do is we, if we hit up, yo, you got to see this. You got to check this out. That's what we see the apostles doing. They've seen and they've tasted. They know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody's going to keep them quiet. And so what was the difference between the leaders and Peter and John? The leaders had the status. They had the acclaim. They had the education. They had the money. Peter and John, they had been with Jesus. And that made all the difference in the world. You can have all the degrees. You can have all the MDivs and the THMs and the ABCDEs. It means nothing if you ain't spending time with Jesus. Praise God for theological education. It's a gift. But the purpose of it, like it should not be exchanged for the purpose, which is to get to know Jesus better, to spend time with Jesus. The apostles were uneducated men, but that didn't matter because they had spent time with Jesus. And notice in verse 21, it says, when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. I just want to zero in on this idea of a sign, the sign that was performed. The sign was great, but it was just a sign. The reality was greater. If you're on your way to the beach and you see a sign that says beach in 10 miles, it would be foolish to pull the car over to the side, jump out with your blanket and your umbrella, and just relax and chill underneath the sign. <laughs> well, no. Like, you, you go to the beach. The beach is greater than this green and white thing we see on the highway. In the same way, the sign that Jesus performed on this man was spectacular. It was amazing. But it was a pointer beyond itself to the greater sign, the healing of our sin that Jesus provided when he went to the cross, and rose from the grave. And for those who trust in Jesus, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Will you trust in him today? I'm going to pray. But before I pray, I just want to give a few moments just for a silent reflection on whatever the Holy Spirit Spirit may have been impressing on your heart this morning, and, and then I'll close our time in prayer.
Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And I want to pray specifically for the person who is a skeptic, skeptical about the claims of Christ. And I pray that in these, even in these next moments, that you would be at work by your spirit to convince them of the truthfulness of these things. And I pray that you would lead them to your word, to find you in the scriptures. I also pray for the person who has someone that they've been wanting to share the gospel with for a long time, but has been afraid to do so. I pray that you would grant boldness for them to be able to, in love and truth, present the gospel to the person they're afraid to share with. And I pray that there would even be the fruit of conversion, that they would see the person that they share the gospel with come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that with man this is impossible, but with you all things are possible. And so would you bless the proclamation of your word to our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.